0: This is Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Babak Tati, award-winning scientist at UHN's Toronto Rehabilitation Institute Research Centre called KITE, which stands for Knowledge, Innovation, Talent Everywhere. Dr. Tati is pioneering the use of computer vision to more accurately and quickly diagnose elderly patients for a number of health issues, including pain management and preventing falls. Dr. Babak Tati, welcome to Behind the Breakthrough. Thank you for having me. Let's start you know, with a primer, if you don't mind. The, the concept of computer vision, what is that?
1: Computer vision is trying to teach computers the ability to analyze and process and understand images and videos. So to give you an example, Object recognition is a prominent computer vision uh, example Uh, that's developing systems, algorithms, and models that allow computers to see an image and discover in it things, objects, and the whereabouts of those objects in the image. Other examples of computer vision problems include face recognition, facial expression analysis, Tracking objects in videos, um, 3D reconstruction, so building 3D model of an object or an environment from a multi- uh, set of images or a video, and also image restoration, so having old images or videos and trying to recover.
0: So then walk us through like, the thought process of how you and, and other you know, scientists such as yourself in this field connected its potential to apply it to healthcare.
1: There are a number of different applications for computer vision systems in healthcare. Probably the most common one is automated analysis of medical imaging data. So MRI, CT scans, x-rays, PET scan, and so on. For example, to detect tumors or bleeding in endoscopic videos. But my own area of work is completely different. I use computer vision systems to analyze the movements of human body. So for example, looking at videos of how people walk or facial movements and facial expressions. And this is for health and clinical assessments for medical diagnosis or for safety monitoring applications.
0: Help us then understand, Babak, what's the gap you're filling out there by using computer vision as opposed to other more traditional methods of analysis or detection?
1: There are a number of gaps. So for example, if you imagine for people with advanced dementia, Uh, using wearable sensors is not often uh, possible. Uh, There might be uh, problems with adherence, following directions. Whereas if you develop an ambient monitoring system that lets people to live their normal daily lives and go about with their activities of daily living, and it just picks up things as they walk around their home or their place of living. Got it. Okay. So let's
0: turn to your pioneering work with computer vision and its applications first to elderly people with dementia who are in need of pain management. I understand there's a serious gap there too when caring for these residents. So talk to us about how you're applying computer vision to, I guess, diagnose or detect
1: pain in in the elderly with dementia. So first to give you some context, pain is very common in old age and there's a lot of research showing that pain is underdiagnosed and undertreated in older adults. And this is especially the case for older people with dementia who might have difficulty verbally communicating that they're in pain. And one thing to note is that long-term care residents are primarily older adults. um, And in Ontario, uh, like in most other jurisdictions, uh, the majority of long-term care residents have dementia. So in Ontario, depending on the home, somewhere between 60 to 80% of residents have dementia. So because of the average age and the prevalence of dementia, the problem of undetected and undertreated pain is a major challenge in long-term care. And trying to address this, one of the projects that I've been working on over the past few years is trying to develop computer vision and artificial intelligence techniques to try to improve pain management. And this is something that I've been working together with Dr. Thomas Hutchison-Savaropoulos of University of Regina, who's a psychologist and an expert in pain and pain management, and especially pain and its assessment in older adults with dementia.
0: So you mentioned the scope and scale and the consequence for elderly residents where pain goes undiagnosed. I imagine there's also stressors on long-term care staff when it comes to accurately detecting pain in someone with dementia.
1: Yeah, so... um... Agitation, aggression, and sometimes violence are unfortunately common in long-term care. And untreated pain is believed to be a source of that. Imagine if you're in pain, that could be from an ulcer, a strained ankle, an infection or whatever that goes undetected and untreated for weeks or months. Um, So it's pretty natural to feel agitated at that point. Um, And it could be something that can be treated with with a few pills. And sometimes even if it's something that is detected and treated in time can prevent the condition from getting worse, for example, and infection getting worse. So agitation and aggression and violence are definitely among these stressors. And I also want to point out that validated pain assessment tools are available. Uh, there are clinical assessments that people can perform that are based on observing facial expressions, body movements, vocalizations, so moaning, crying, and things like that. And there are, in fact, two valid, clinically valid assessments for people in dementia, with dementia. And the second one, especially developed by Thomas uh, and his team, is especially dev- designed to be easier to train long-term care staff to administer it. Um, but the problem is that long-term care homes are understaffed, so they don't have enough human resources to perform regular assessments. And uh, We've seen this understaffing problem being highlighted and really exacerbated during the pandemic.
0: Visually, could you paint a picture for us? Because you're not having a, a patient come and stand in front of a camera,
1: right? Like no, no, no. no all that's purely in situ in the home. Uh, exactly. So the idea is to have the cameras, the ha- use these uh, security cameras that are in long-term care, uh, okay, and automatically detect faces. And as people are sitting around watching TV, talking to each other, or doing whatever they do, nothing happens. If they show expressions of pain for a sustained period of time, then the idea is that the system will alert care staff so they can go intervene. Is
0: there a way you can explain to us how does the computer vision software or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. detect in just through the CCTV cameras when someone Mm -hmm. is in
1: pain? So for that, we use machine learning techniques. The way machine learning techniques work is, or I should say the way supervised machine learning techniques work is that you show them lots and lots of examples. So you show them, in our case, images and videos of people, older adults with dementia in various levels of pain. And the deep learning model learns the patterns of facial expression that correspond with pain and the intensity of pain. So next time when it sees a new unseen image of somebody that is not in the data set, it can generalize and estimate the level of pain in this new face does it work in terms yeah so of staff? so the uh, uh, the prototype that we have right now is that a light goes on in the nursing station and also an email is sent to whoever the LCC is set it up to so they get notified by the light going on and then they can go check out and which room the light the, the notification is coming from uh-huh, okay but uh, let me go back to the training of the machine learning model um, yeah. because like the way the model is trained is by looking at a lot of examples. So you can imagine that the having access to, to a good training set is a really important prerequisite for having a model that performs well. And I want to say that pain detection is a very active area of research, and there are plenty of models that are published by other people. But the available data sets, um, and there are two major ones that everybody uses, are of younger and middle-aged people without dementia. So As you can expect, when you train a model to detect facial expressions of pain on faces of young, healthy people, if you test it on faces of older people who have dementia, their faces look different, their expressions look different, and so the model doesn't work well, and we've experimentally shown that it doesn't work so well.
0: So, Babak, what has your research yielded thus far in terms of results?
1: To train the machine learning model, Thomas and his team in Regina first collected a really large pool of data of over 100 people, older adults, with and without dementia during normal conditions and also during painful conditions. And then all of this data got annotated frame by frame for the intensity of pain being expressed. And then we used deep learning models, uh, convolutional neural network models, to train a model that gets the highest accuracy in identifying pain and the level of pain in older adults with dementia, we have a state of the art machine learning model. I'm not going to go into the details, but to give you some numbers, and we aggregate our predictions over 20 seconds, the agreement between our model's predictions and the ground truth labels that are manually annotated by psychologists is over 80%. to be exact. And uh, for comparison, the best available technique prior to this got 60%. So we are better by a large margin. So to answer your question, so far, we have a validated algorithm that gives you the best state-of-the-art performance in the target population of older adults with dementia. We have uh, a paper that is published, and we also released our pre-trained model for academic use. So other academics who are researching in this area can try out our model.
0: Do I have this correctly? Then what you're saying is thus far in terms of your results, 82% of the time, computer vision is accurately detecting when a patient, an elderly dementia patient is in pain, in fact, because you go and then have them do the, the more comprehensive test, I imagine?
1: Yes. The correlation between our predictions in terms of intensity of pain and the labels that psychologists provided is 82%.
0: So. Next step for you, I understand you have a trial about to get underway in a long-term care home to investigate further the use of computer vision to detect pain in residents. What can you
1: tell us about that? Yeah, we're doing this in two steps. Uh, The first step is that our colleagues in Regina are starting a live clinical validation of this technology. That means bringing people in the lab and testing the system in real time rather than on recorded video, which is what what we've done so far. So live performance is obviously more challenging, but you're quite confident. The next step is to implement this in two long-term care homes. And I had to measure the effect of the system in improving pain management. And I'm very excited about this and really looking forward to it. When is this getting underway? This is a little bit delayed because of the pandemic. We were hoping to start in 2021, but um, a little bit pushed back because of the pandemic. So stay tuned.
0: Okay. And I'm curious, have you had any reaction from the research field or long-term care homes
1: about this work? Um, Yeah, the reaction has always been very positive. We collected our data in uh, long-term care homes in Regina and they were quite excited to help and also excited to learn that we were working on this technology and they were eager to try it out when it was ready. Uh, And the participants and their families were also excited and happy. And every time we've showcased the system, uh, the reaction from the long-term care community has always been quite positive. And that's not really surprising because the project was initiated by the community and uh, from a real clinical need. And um, the project is co-led, as I mentioned, by myself and a clinical collaborator. Um, And in fact, all of my projects are co-led by me and a clinical colleague. And finally, I want to say that Along the way, we've taken input from the long-term care community, care staff, residents, families, and so on.
0: Another big issue in long-term care is residents who fall. Frame the narrative for us
1: again in terms of just how serious an issue this is. So if you talk to people who work in long-term care, they'll tell you that pain management and falls and consequences of falls, injury and sometimes even death, are two of their main ongoing challenges. So we already talked about pain and, and I'm glad you asked about faults. We are working on an ambient monitoring technology to monitor walking patterns and changes in gait in people with dementia who live in long-term care. And the goal is to have a system that can automatically detect and identify individuals who are at the high risk of falling in the short term. And again, similar to our pain management technology, the goal is to have a screening system and to notify care staff so they can intervene before someone falls. This is a joint project with Dr. Andrew Iboni, who's a geriatric psychiatrist and a clinician researcher at FITE. In terms of motivations for this project, um, there's some challenges in using standard fall risk assessment tools, clinical assessments for the older adults with dementia population. So for example, problems with following instructions in it. So if you imagine that someone with advanced dementia, if you ask them to walk five meters, turn and come back, if that person has difficulty with verbal communication, they might have difficulty following those instructions. The other problem with existing clinical fall risk assessment tools is that they often give you an assessment of fall risk in the long term. So a year, for example. And then finally, because of age dementia, and other cognitive or physical challenges in long-term care. Pretty much everyone in long-term care is categorized as having a high falling risk. And that's not really an actionable knowledge. If you know everyone is at a high risk of falling over the next year, which is a pretty long period.
0: So Babak, what have you been able to report thus far in terms of your research, in terms of, again, triaging falls or preventing
1: falls? So, so far we've developed an ambient monitoring system that has a camera that's installed in the hallway. First, we installed this in the specialized dementia unit at Toronto Rehab. We collected data there for about a year and a half. Since then, we have ongoing data collection at, a, at Lakeside Long-Term Care. We've had a number of publications showing feasibility and then also showing that ambient assessment of gates during the first two weeks of stay after admission predict future falls in the short term, so in coming weeks. And that having this ambient information about uh, gage collected by ambient monitoring improves the fall risk prediction over existing clinical tools. And then most importantly, we've developed machine learning models that take as inputs longitudinal changes in gait and also medication intake uh, and all the other information that we have. And then dynamically updates short-term fall risks or for each person. And if you imagine uh, this information is now an actionable knowledge. If you know that this this person and that person, rather than everybody, this person and that person are at a higher falling risk over the next month, then you have the opportunity that to go intervene. Maybe the care staff can review their medications and maybe there's a medication, new medication that is affecting your gates, uh, or maybe they can do a physical checkup and maybe they can even identify an underlying health problem that is causing the gait problems. It's amazing. What
0: What's the next step for you in, in terms of uh, advancing this particular research?
1: Yes. So we've had uh, data collection at lakeside going on for a while. It got interrupted because of the pandemic, but now we're back on. The idea is to use the data that we've collected at um, we're collecting at lakeside to externally validate the models that we developed using the Toronto Rehab data. So we developed our fall detection, fall risk prediction model using the data at Toronto Rehab, and we will validate it externally on the lakeside data.
0: That's fantastic. And I understand you're also investigating the application of computer vision as a communication tool using facial recognition for, uh, say, stroke patients and people with Parkinson's disease who've lost the ability to speak. First, talk to us
1: about the unmet need here. The unmet need is that speech-language pathologists require a lot of training. Nevertheless, the existing or official assessment tools are quite subjective. So what we want to do is to develop a clinically valid, accurate, and most importantly, objective tool to monitor disease progression and also monitor response to treatments and interventions. And what we're working on is trying to develop an app or a web app that you can use daily for five minutes, and it gives you a clinically valid assessment. And if you use it multiple times for several days, it gives you a trajectory of the progression of your disease or the response to medication. And once we have this technology, you can use it, for example, to investigate the efficacy of new treatments or to investigate the side effects of new pharmaceutical interventions and so on.
0: So how would the application work?
1: This is still a work in progress, but the idea is to have an app. Uh, we have a demo app at virtual-slp.com. So far, it's just for data collection, but the goal is to add functionality to this system, so it gives you live feedback. So the system, you go open up the web page, it tells you to open up your mouse, say, go, ah, go, E. say, pa, 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 say, patica, patica, parigan. and it, a few standard um, tasks from the SLP assessment. And then at the end of it, it gives you a score. It gives you a score for speed, range of motion, facial symmetry, and so on. And you use it for every day. And after a couple of weeks, it gives you a trajectory.
0: And so where would you see this going over the next couple of years?
1: On the academic front, so far, we've shown that we can use computer vision techniques to accurately track facial movement, to distinguish between clinical populations. And that's useful for diagnosis, and also to automatically compute and extract features that correlate with perceptual clinical scores of symmetry, velocity, range of motion, and so on. So the idea is to Im- incorporate all of this into the app. So we have an app that has a simple and easy to use user interface that you go to the web page or open it on your tablet, and it gives you a, simple, a few simple instructions, and you can complete the daily assessment in five minutes. Wow.
0: And give us the translation here, Babak. Is this something that somehow in the future would allow people with, say, suffering stroke or or Parkinson's who've lost the ability to speak to somehow communicate?
1: Not by itself, but the idea is this will be an additional tool that is available to neurologists and to speech language pathologists to monitor how interventions that they're recommending are responding, how the person is responding to those interventions.
0: One more application of computer vision for is for patients with sleep apnea. First off, talk to us about the challenges to accurate diagnosis and, and, and discerning which kind of sleep apnea a patient has,
1: because I understand that's crucial to figuring out what choice of treatment should be. Exactly. So sleep apnea is very common, but um, you might know that it's severely underdiagnosed and um, untreated and sleep apnea and the resulting lack of sleep uh, linked to a whole slew of health problems from cardiovascular, the memory problems, and also motor accidents and car accidents and so on. Um, the clinical assessment polysomnography in the lab is uncomfortable because you got to attach a whole bunch of sensors to the person. It's expensive in many jurisdictions there's long wait times and also you get to sleep in an environment that is not really your own bed and your own home so your sleeping patterns might differ so what we're trying to do is to do to develop home assessment technology for at least for pre-screening and what is important is to also be able to differentiate between different types of sleep apnea because as you said the treatment is different depending on the type of apnea
0: so, how do you apply? How are you applying computer vision to diagnosing sleep apnea?
1: The idea is to record infrared videos that um, are night vision videos, basically, and develop computer vision and machine learning models that uh, can process these videos and identify apneic episodes, so episodes of apnea and hypopnea, and also differentiate between central and obstructive sleep apnea. And this is a project that I've been working on together with Dr. Azadeh Yadolahi, who is another scientist at KITES. To develop this, we collected a lot of data in a polysomnography lab. And simultaneously, we also recorded infrared video data. And this was our training sets for the machine learning model that can look at a video and try to predict the uptake episodes and their locations in time.
0: So give us a sense of the accuracy of the results you're, you've been yielding so far in terms of Diagnosing, I guess, sleep apnea and discerning
1: kind. Yeah. We have a number of publications showing that this uh, on the validation of the system that we've developed, we can accurately detect apnea and hypopnea episodes. We can distinguish between central and obstructive apnea, and as you mentioned, there's that's important because the treatment options are different. And we can also automatically detect people who have positional sleep apnea. That's people who, for whom the majority of sleep apnea episodes are in the supine sleeping position, so sleeping on their back. And again, that's important because the treatment options for someone who has positional sleep apnea versus someone who does not is different.
0: So just give us a sense of what kind of results are you and the team seeing s- so far in terms of the accuracy of this method of uh, detecting
1: sleep apnea? Pretty good results. So to give you an example, for, detect- for distinguishing between obstructive versus central apnea, you are getting an accuracy of... Uh, about 95%. So what's your
0: sense then of of translating this to where we would maybe see the computer vision method being used as a standard of care in clinical practice? Because this is way more convenient for the patient, right? They're at home. They don't have all the electrodes hooked up to them. They get a decent night's sleep.
1: So what we're hoping, uh, at least in first steps, is to use this as a pre-screening tool. So use it to identify individuals who are particularly at a high risk and give them priority for polysomnography. And then in parallel, also Dr. Yadulahi and I are also working with a UHN physician, Dr. Mandeep Singh. And that's for a project to try to use this technology in hospital and surgical settings to monitor sleep apnea in uh, pre- and post-operative patients. This is something that we're just starting. I'm pretty excited about it. So hopefully in a few months, we will have some exciting results about that as well.
0: That's amazing. Finally, I understand there's an ethical component to your research where you want to ensure it's applied in such a way so as not to assume racial and cultural biases. Talk to us about that.
1: Uh, Yeah, there are multiple ethical issues in the context of ambient monitoring. Um, There are questions about privacy, disparate impact, and fairness. About privacy, obviously there's a trade-off between loss of privacy or perceived loss of privacy and potential benefits and gains. In terms of bias and fairness, there was a famous research out of MIT a few years ago that showed that uh, face recognition models, commercially available face recognition models, perform differently than tested on faces of men versus women and also on faces of people with light skin versus dark skin. And in our own own work, we've also shown that uh, facial analysis models work um, less accurately when tested on faces of people with a cognitive or physical disability. So these are really important considerations when trying to use an existing tool in clinical environments. And in terms of fair machine learning and disparate inc- impacts, so for example, for our fall risk assessment or pain detection projects, having a high accuracy is not enough. You also want to have equal performance in different groups, for example, men and women, or Equal performance, regardless of ethnicity or racial background.
0: You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and today we're speaking with Dr. Babak Tati, award winning scientist at UHN's Toronto Rehabilitation Institute research center called KITE. Dr. Toddy's research is made possible in part thanks to generous donor support. So if you'd like to contribute to Dr. Toddy's groundbreaking medical research, please go to www.uhnfoundation.ca forward slash podcasts. Babak, you were born and raised in Tehran, Iran. Both parents and your brother are engineers, so you went into the family business. Uh, You got an engineering degree in 1997, followed by obligatory military service for 18 months. And then you left your homeland and came to Canada to pursue postgraduate studies in robotics. That decision to leave home and your family at age just 23, travel halfway around the world to restart your education here in Canada.
1: Give us a sense. What was that like for you? It was pretty exciting. I was really excited to come to Canada and to continue my education. um, And I was really happy about it.
0: What's interesting about your career trajectory is you really were going down the road of space robotics for the first quite Mm -hmm. a while. You went on to do a PhD at Queen's. You worked at the National Research Council in Ottawa and then a startup company in Montreal. Talk to us about this epiphany that led you to pivot your career and apply your engineering skills to healthcare.
1: Yeah, I can't really say it was an epiphany. It just kind of happened, but I'm really glad it did. A postdoc opportunity came up and I really liked the job advert and the idea of developing technology to help people and especially older people. And I went for it. It turned out great. I did my postdoc with Alex, uh, Dr. Alex Miladies, And it was a really wonderful experience and he was a wonderful and supporting mentor and still is. And it was a good uh, learning experience to learn, to translate my engineering skills to healthcare applications.
0: I'm curious, as you were thinking through this career
1: change, did you have any doubts about doing this? Not really. I always kind of liked academia and being a researcher, but my backup plan was always to go back to industry. So there was not really much of a risk and I thought it was worth a try and I'm glad I did. And I'm really happy it worked out.
0: So talk to us about mentorship. You mentioned Dr. Mihaili's the role that mentorship has played in guiding your career. Talk to us about
1: that. Yeah, it has had a tremendous role. I already mentioned Alex, uh, uh, Dr. Mieladis, um, and he's been awesome and supportive throughout the years. I've also been lucky to have mentorship and support from Dr. Jeff Fernie and Dr. Miloš Popovic, who are both quite so- supportive. And I've really benefited greatly from being guided by all three of them. And it can be little things about day-to-day stuff of, uh, dealing with your research finances or how to recruit students. But it can also be bigger picture things, uh, giving hints and suggestions about career directions, helping you think big, uh, telling you about opportunities and so on.
0: So now what advice do you give younger students and
1: fellows just starting out in the field? My work is really applied and I like applied research. So everyone in my lab is trained in a transdisciplinary environment, working with engineers, computer scientists, and clinicians with various backgrounds. And we also work with stakeholders, long-term care staff, families, older adults, and also with industry partners. So for students and postdocs who work with me, who choose to work in our group, I really try to push them to think not just about the technical topics, engineering, computer science, but also about translating their skills into practice, being able to communicate and collaborate with people from different fields, um, mostly clinicians in our case. But it's not really general advice to everyone. Some other people might not like applied research and they might enjoy working in a different lab. Uh, so it's more about choosing the lab and work environment that suits your interest and your career goals.
0: And when it comes to failure in, in research, what what counsel do you do you give when it comes
1: to that challenge. Academia can be very nice and also very harsh at the same time. Uh, One day you get a lot of praise for some work, a paper or a project, and then the next day a paper or a grant under review comes back with harsh reviews and being rejected. Um, And I guess the advice is have develop thick skin and also try to use everything as a learning opportunity. If you get negative and harsh reviews, try not to take it personally and see if you can use it to improve your work. But that's really easier said than done. And it can still be quite frustrating sometimes. I guess that's okay too. It's okay to have feelings.
0: We've we've talked about a number of the unmet needs and gaps in healthcare and how your uh, research in computer vision is trying to fill or solve those gaps. So I imagine that you know the urgency for patients, and yet you also know that science takes time. How do you reconcile those opposing forces?
1: Yeah, it's, it's quite a challenge. I'm glad you brought this up. And I actually want to use this to give a shout out to our institute, Kite, and also to Agewell. And let me tell you why. So first, Kite is what I like about Kite and what really makes it a unique research institute is that translation is really greatly valued in the institute. So translating a research project into commercial products or an open source software that is used or making a difference in people's lives and well-beings and healthcare of older adults and people with a disability is really valued as much, if not more, than publishing an awesome science paper. And then AgeWell is, um, you probably know, is a Canadian network that brings together researchers, developers, and stakeholders to develop technologies for healthy aging. Um, and they are also really big advocates uh, and proponents of translation and commercializations. And helping push research projects that are proven, validated into the world and being commercialized or released for use. And I'm really grateful to them for supporting our work, both financially and also for providing a network that supports translation.
0: So you're a pure researcher. I'm curious, how do you keep patients top of mind
1: as you pursue your daily research Yeah, that's a good question. Um, They are the motivation for everything we do. Our design philosophy is co-designed and including stakeholders throughout research. And that starts from the get-go. So that means inviting and involving people who will be end users of our technologies to our meetings and their input informs our design process and uh, incorporating their knowledge and perspective into our designs and iteratively refining our designs and solutions to address their concerns and to meet their needs.
0: Simon Sinek is an author on leadership and motivation, who I I love quoting uh, this line of his where he says, people don't buy what you do, they
1: buy why you do it. Why do you do what you do? I don't have a good answer for this, I'm afraid, Uh, other than saying it's complicated. It involves many things, but obviously helping other people is a big part of that motivation. And obviously doing good science is also a big part of that motivation. But I'm also happy to be in an environment that is supportive and I have nice and smart colleagues and get the opportunity have the opportunity to work with smart students and so on. So that's also a big part of it.
0: So that decision to pivot your career from robotics to healthcare, what do you think of that decision when you reflect on it today?
1: It turned out quite well. I'm pretty happy. I really, truly like my job. And as I said, having the opportunity to work with smart, supportive colleagues and brilliant students and to work on projects that I find meaningful is really quite rewarding.
0: And your family, what did they think of their son who left home all those years ago and what he's accomplished?
1: They're quite supportive. Uh, The one challenge is that they are literally around across the world. And my parents are getting older, and they have their own health challenges. Um, they used to come visit Toronto once in a while, but now they can't. And with the pandemic, I haven't been able to go visit. So that's been quite challenging. So it kind of gives me a personal perspective on all the stuff we talk about, aging population, technology for aging. So, Baba, finally, what's your next priority? What's What should we watch for? Yeah, so I'm going to continue on research projects. That's what I enjoy doing. But also, a couple of our projects have reached that mature stage that are now ready to be pushed out and released. Uh, So over the next few years, I'm also going to be working a lot on trying to work with industry partners and on commercializations. So stay tuned.
0: (laughs) That's great. So Dr. Babak Tati, award-winning scientist at UHN's Toronto Rehabilitation Institute Research Centre. Thanks for sharing your pioneering work and continued success. Thank you. Dr. Tati's research is made possible in part thanks to generous donor support. If you'd like to contribute to Dr. Tati's groundbreaking medical research, please go to www.uhnfoundation.ca forward slash podcast. And for more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca and let us know what you think. We crave feedback. That's a wrap for this edition of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening.